Psychology says that our happiness grows in direct inverse proportion to our expectations, or in other words, we are often unhappy because what we expected to happen didn't happen. The people didn't behave like we expected, our lives didn't turn out like we expected. The more I can appreciate how things are instead of how I expected them to be, the more likely I am to find joy where I am. Um, in other words, we're often unhappy when what we expected to happen didn't happen. And the more I can enjoy the way things are instead of the way I wanted them to be, the more I can be happy. Back in the 1960s, researchers at Harvard conducted a study that resulted in what they called the Pygmalion effect. Essentially, they found that if you have somebody who believes in you, your chance of success goes way up. But if you have someone who believes you're going to fail, your chance of failure goes way up. If you expect people to fail, they sense an imperceptible push to fail. If you expect people to succeed, they sense an imperceptible push to succeed. And they found that while this generally helped people succeed or fail, like if your spouse really believes in you, you have a better chance of getting that promotion more than, oh, I don't think you're going to do it, I don't think you're going to make it. What they found, though, was this belief in people didn't work to actually change specific characteristics in people. For instance, you can expect your toddler to sleep all through the night, and uh, that expectation does not make her sleep all through the night, no matter how much I expect it and beg for it and want it. Uh, she was up most of the night, so Darby's not here, um, and they're both crashing this morning. Thank you, Darby, for getting up with her all through the night. But you can expect your partner to stop putting clutter everywhere. You can stop or expect your partner to stop snoring, but those expectations they found never change people, and they only make you miserable for expecting them to change when they don't even realize it's an expectation, or you expect them to change and they have no idea how to change that in themselves. So while expecting people to succeed or fail actually increases their chances of succeeding or failing, expectations for people to change specific behaviors don't actually change them. We can't expect others to change. The only thing we can successfully change is our surprising expectations people have attitudes towards them. And today we're going to be talking about some of the surprising expectations people had for Jesus. They thought, this is what I want Jesus to be, this is what I want Jesus to do, this is who I want him to hang out with and what I want him to say, and um, when it comes down to it, Jesus, they couldn't change Jesus with their expectations. They had to change their expectations of Jesus. A lot of people in Jesus' day had expectations for what the Messiah would be like, and many of these people were very unhappy with Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations. Instead of adapting to who he was, they angrily demanded that he fit their vision. You might say he was killed because he refused to be the Messiah that people wanted. He insisted on being the Messiah we needed rather than the Messiah they wanted him to be. People had this vision that the Messiah would come in and he'd defeat Rome. He'd kill the Roman emperor. He'd set Israel free. And instead he came in and what did he preach on Matthew 5 through 7? Enemy love. That's not what they were wanting. That's not what they... Uh, they expected, but it's what we needed. And people are still wrestling with their expectations of Jesus today. If you take a quick survey of churches in America, if you just went all across America and you listened to different churches this morning, um, it seems that they talk about Jesus either as a super progressive liberal that hates rules and restrictions of any kind, 
or they talk about him as a super restrictive legalist that loves to threaten people with hell. In reality, I think Jesus is someone who doesn't fit neatly into our modern boxes. Uh, Jefferson Beth, he, I think we have a quote up here from him, where he's like, Jesus is too conservative for the conservatives, but too liberal for the liberals. He doesn't fit into our modern boxes. If Jesus agrees with all of your politics, you're probably worshiping yourself and calling it Jesus, right? Jesus has a tendency to just not fit neatly into the modern boxes. He ate with the outcasts and the sinners, but he also told those outcasts and sinners to go and sin no more. So let's jump into our passage today and see if our expectations for Jesus can be reshaped by the text today. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been following Jesus in this firsthand account from the Gospel of Matthew. He's been building a case for Jesus's authority as king to heal, and we're going to pick up where we left off from last week in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. This is the guy writing the book. This is where he comes into the story. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. So Matthew here is recording the moment that Jesus invited him to become a disciple. The moment that Jesus went up to Matthew, a traitorous tax collector, and said, Hey, come and be an apprentice of my way of life. Now Matthew has been building this case study for the healing power of Jesus. He's like, Jesus had been healing sicknesses and ailments. He healed nature. He stopped that storm. He healed demons. He cast out demons. He even forgave sin. And there's been this crescendo building up, like Jesus keeps doing bigger and bigger things. And Matthew puts his story here like one of the biggest miracles Jesus did was to actually invite me. That's how Matthew thought about it. To Matthew, the most impressive act of healing was not Jesus stopping storms or casting out demons. It was him inviting someone like Matthew to be an apprentice of his way of life. Matthew's like, oh, it's impressive that you can stop storms and you can cast out demons. But what really impresses me is that you, Jesus, would love someone like me, someone like you. For Matthew, what Jesus did for others was awesome, but what he did for him seemed the most miraculous act of all. Um, in this series, I've been encouraging you to ask and pray for Jesus to heal something in your life or in your family, something in your city or in your community or in your world. I'm praying about something. I hope you are as too, because we have a God who acts and heals. And hearing stories of healing are great. When I hear about somebody and they're like, I was prayed for and I was healed. I had this and I was healed. This happened and I was healed. I, I think that's great. It's exciting. But experiencing it is even better. Hearing about miracles is great. Seeing a miracle when little, our little daughter is running around here, I'm like, this is a living, breathing miracle. After 10 years of thinking I'd never have a child, like, this is a living, breathing miracle. She was taken away and she came back. This is literally a resurrection. But seeing a miracle, as great as it is, is not the same as experiencing experiencing you can tell i've been up late tonight i can't say it experiencing a miraculous answer to prayer yourself is life-changing seeing someone else's miracle yes that's exciting hearing about someone else's miracle yes that's exciting seeing jesus do a miracle for you oh that'll change you that'll reshape the trajectory of your life 
And by inviting Matthew, Jesus is defying expectations yet again. As a Roman tax collector, Matthew would have been shunned in Jewish society. The Jews hated the Romans. The Romans levied a heavy tax on them. Historians disagree. It was somewhere between 50% of your income to 90% of your income was taxed by the Roman Empire. So not only do you hate them for stealing your land, being oppressive, ruling over you, controlling everything about your life, and if you complained about anything, a centurion would just come and kill you on the spot, Rome made it difficult for you to even survive and provide for your family by taking a huge chunk of your income. And so the Jews who sold out their countrymen to work for Rome as tax collectors were despised as traitors, but also despised because they lived lavishly off the very taxes they stole from their family, friends, and neighbors. So imagine this crazy scenario. China conquers America. China says, okay, I need some Americans to become tax collectors. And so your neighbor is literally coming to your house, taking 90% of your income, living in a mansion right next door to you where you barely have enough food to feed your family, and they're living it up. You would not have kind words for them. You would not think happy thoughts about them. You would hate those kind of people. And that's exactly the person that Jesus goes up to and says, hey, follow me. According to biblical scholars, Matthew was likely a custom house official, not a door-to-door tax collector. Essentially, he was a higher-up tax collector. So this just wasn't your average, everyday tax collector. He sat at a tax collecting booth in Capernaum. The historians tell us that this is probably responsible. His responsibilities included collecting real estate tax, income tax, and the poll tax for all the trade that went in and out of Capernaum. He was like a middle manager over tax collectors. So he wasn't like the bottom run guy. He was kind of high up a little bit. He had some responsibilities. He had tax collectors who worked for him. And here Jesus goes to this guy, probably the most despised person in Israel, and says, hey, follow me. Now, rabbis in Jesus uh, said that there was no hope for someone like Matthew. We have some writings from the first century from other rabbis. Some ancient writings called these men licensed robbers. One rabbi's writings we have called the tax collectors, the Jewish tax collectors who worked for Rome, beasts in human shape. They weren't even human anymore. He was, a tax collector was excluded from all religious fellowship. He couldn't go to a synagogue. He couldn't go to the temple. If he gave money to the poor, it was considered tainted, and anyone who accepted it would be considered defiled by it. If he gave money to the church or the synagogue, the temple, they would throw it out. He could not be a witness in Jewish court because they said, you're a tax collector. We don't trust you. You're the epitome of untrustful, untrustworthiness. And here is Jesus going to one of the most reviled people in Israel, offering healing and offering hope. And if Jesus went to the most reviled person in Israel, no matter what you have in your past, no matter what you have in your present, Jesus is saying, making the same invitation to you and me, come follow me. Jesus didn't go to the synagogues to recruit the best students. There were other rabbis in the time of Jesus traveling around, getting disciples. They would go to the synagogues. And in the synagogue, young Jewish students would learn the Old Testament. They would literally memorize the Old Testament. And the best students were recruited to follow um, up-and-coming rabbis around to learn their teachings and to spread their teachings. Instead, Jesus didn't go to the synagogues. He went to the trades. These are people who are already flunked out of synagogue school and were just doing trade work. And so he had picked up some fishermen. He had picked up some other day laborer type people. But now he was inviting a traitor who worked for Rome. And here's what he says. He walks up to him and he goes, follow me. Like, I love how he doesn't even be like, 
hey, I know this is unusual, this is weird, you're not a normal person to pick. He's just like, follow me. Like, it's just like anybody else, you have an invitation to come and become a student of Jesus' way of life. It was a normal invitation from a traveling rabbi, but it was abnormal for a rabbi to even look at a Roman tax collector and see any potential to be a disciple. One of the things I love about Jesus is he looks past who we are and he sees who we can be. As we become students of how he lived and loved, we become the best version of ourselves. Somehow by becoming like him, we find the real us. Um, people in my generation, millennials, they love to go off and like, I'm taking a gap year to find myself, you know, and they travel around the world or they climb a mountain or something. And then my friends would come back and I'd be like, did you find yourself? And they're like, no, but I got some really cool Insta pictures, you know, and like, like I guess that was what they were looking for. Uh, if you want to find yourself, dig deep into Jesus, because in seeking after Jesus and becoming like Jesus, you will find your true self. And of course, people are upset about when Jesus does this, when he invites this tax collector. This isn't what a rabbi is supposed to do. He's out there partying at Matthew's house with all the tax collectors who work for Matthew. And then there's the religious people, the Pharisees, who are outside judging him. And here's what he says to him. He quotes Hosea 6.6 when they're like, why are you eating with these people? He's, Hosea 6.6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus says, you need to go and figure out what this verse means. That's why you don't understand what I'm doing. The prophet Hosea lived roughly 700 years before Jesus, and he mostly wrote about how God had been faithful, but God's people had been unfaithful. And God kept being faithful, but they kept being unfaithful. And in the book of Hosea, Israel says, look, we keep all your sacrifices. We show up at all your events. We do all your festivals. And God says, yeah, you're going through the motions. You're doing religious duties, but your hearts are far from me. And in the middle of the book, it's where this line is. I want you to show mercy to other people, not sacrifice lots of animals. I want you to know me, not just burn a lot of sacrifices on an altar in my name. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees. These are the religious elites of his day. Bare minimum to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the Old Testament. Anybody, like, a lot of us haven't even read through the Old Testament. It's a slog, right? It's hard to get through. They memorized it. They knew it. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forward. And here's what Jesus says to them. You still haven't figured out what God really wants. Some of us still have this problem. We, find, we forget that religious rituals aren't the goal. We're taking communion today, which is a religious ritual. R religious rituals are designed to be signposts to point our hearts and our bodies back to God. But they're not enough. It's not just about doing the ritual. It's about communion, spending time reconnecting with God. Jesus wants us to be with him, to become like him, and ultimately to do what he did. Now, it wasn't just the Pharisees who were upset by this party. John the Baptist, who had been Jesus's hype man, like he went before Jesus, and he's like, the Lamb of God is coming. He's going to take away the sins of the world. This guy is coming. I, he's so great. I don't even, uh, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. He's coming. And then he baptized Jesus. Um, that guy, John the Baptist, sends some of his disciples in the follow-up story to this. So let's read verses 14 through 17 and see what's going on here. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. 
No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And I can just imagine John's disciples like, thank you, Yoda. Like, I have no idea what you just said. Like, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about? Now, Jesus isn't against fasting. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 through 7, which we looked at last summer, Jesus told his disciples, when you fast, not if you fast. So Jesus isn't against fasting. Um, a, a, uh, a Orthodox Jew in Jesus's day would fast once a week at least. Some would fast twice a week. And they would fast from sunup to sundown, giving the money they would have spent on food that day to the poor. And so Jesus isn't against fasting. But Jesus recognizes the question here isn't really about fasting. What just happened? Jesus just invited a tax collector, hung out at the tax collector's house, and partied with a bunch of tax collectors. The Pharisees were like, mm -mm, I don't like this. And then John hears about it, and John goes, that's not my Messiah. My Messiah wouldn't hang out with those people partying with a bunch of tax collectors. And so he comes and he asks this question. Jesus recognizes that the question isn't really about fasting. Apparently, John had heard about this party that Jesus had at Matthew's house, and he's like, this isn't what the Messiah is supposed to look like. So he goes about asking about the party in a roundabout way. He says, why aren't you fasting instead of partying? Like, that's essentially what he's saying. Why aren't you and your disciples doing more fasting and less of that, hanging out at Matthew's house with all the tax collectors partying? I don't like that. Fasting is a better look for the Messiah. John's essentially, like, doing a quiet critique of Jesus, like, maybe a little bit more fasting, maybe a little bit less partying with tax collectors. It's better for your image. Now, haven't you noticed this about religious people that sometimes they don't say the quiet part out loud? John could have said, I don't like you partying with tax collectors. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's not my expectations for the Messiah. But instead he says, how about we do more fasting? Why don't you do more fasting? And he expects Jesus to be like, oh, you're right. I should be doing more fasting, I guess, right? No, sometimes religious people don't say the quiet part out loud, but we get their hint, right? In the South, uh, where I grew up, people would say, bless your heart which means I think you're an idiot. So in church, you would say something, and they'd go, oh, bless your heart. They'd pat you on your back, and, but what they're really saying is you're stupid. I, I think you're dumb, or you're a mess. Um, or look at that outfit. That's terrible, you know? Um, Darby, I was asking Darby about this, if she could think of any, and Darby said she didn't get married. We didn't marry until she was 30, and she said people kept coming up to her at church and saying, um, are you dating and she says, the quiet part they didn't say was, we think you're a lesbian. Like, like why aren't you married yet? Like, why aren't you married to somebody? Um, if you're not married by 18, there must be something wrong with you, right? And sometimes churches don't say the quiet part out loud, but we hear it. Um, sometimes you hear things like, Jesus loves you, but he hates you when you do that. Or everyone's welcome as long as you do everything like we do it, you know, or like, you know, you can say whatever you want as long as it completely aligns up with us. You're welcome as long as you vote the same way as we do or look the same way as you. Sometimes religious people don't say the quiet part out loud. But Jesus knows what John is really asking because of how he responds. He says, hey, speaking of parties and wine, let me give you an example about wine. Here's a lesson for wine for you, John. Now, it's a really weird passage. You're like, sewing patches onto clothes, wineskins. 
what's going on. If you don't understand it in the context of the passage, that this is really about Jesus not meeting John's expectations about what a Messiah should do, and if you don't understand it in its historical context, it can be misused in all kinds of weird ways. In Jesus' day, people used animal skins, like goat skins, <laughs> for storing liquids. I think we have a picture of a Bedouin up here. You can barely see it with the uh, bright lights from the window. But there's a, like a goat skin, and he's fermenting wine in it. Now, when the fermentation process takes place, the skin would stretch. And it would stretch to as, uh, as big as it could get. And it, once it was stretched to its limit, if you put new wine in there and let it ferment, it would stretch beyond its stretching point, and it would actually crack, and you would lose the wine, and you would lose the wineskin. You could put old wine in an old wineskin, but you couldn't put new wine that was still fermenting into an old wineskin, or it would break. New wine needed to be preserved in new wineskins. As the wine expanded, the new skins would stretch to accommodate it. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus was making a very specific point to John the Baptist. I'm here to do something new. If you try to shove what I'm doing into your old way of thinking, then you're going to miss out on the amazing things that are happening. Through Jesus, God was redeeming the world to himself. And if people expected this to look familiar to what God had done before, they wouldn't understand it. And at worst, they might miss out on it. If John tried to force what Jesus was doing into his old paradigm for how things worked and how things looked, it would blow his mind just like new wine would blow out an old wine sack. Now, I'd love to say that John the Baptist heard this and he was like, okay, I'm good now. I understand Jesus is going to do some things that I don't understand, that I might not approve of, that I might not like. He might do some things that I don't expect and that's okay. But we're going to read on in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to see John send more disciples back to Jesus. And at this point, he's become thoroughly disenfranchised with Jesus because Jesus doesn't do more fasting and less parting. He's actually going to do more parting between here and the next time John sends disciples. And in Matthew eleven three, the disciples come from John and they say, John wants to know if you're really the Messiah or if he should be looking for somebody else because you don't fit his expectations at all. This is John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist who said, I must increase, or Jesus must increase, I must decrease. John who leapt in his mother's womb when he heard the news of Mary. John, the man who baptized Jesus and heard a voice say, Behold my beloved son. That John had reached a point where who he expected Jesus to be was so far from reality that he was ready to look for someone else. And that might be where you are today. Your expectations for Jesus have not matched reality, and you're like, maybe I should look somewhere else. You might be where you feel like Jesus hasn't been the God you've expected, and some of you might be so disappointed because the Jesus life that church has told you about and that you were told to expect actually isn't reality. The big lie of religion that I grew up with in churches is this. If you keep the rules, you'll be blessed, which meant, i.e., happy, safe, comfortable, well-off, well-educated, plenty of stuff, um, really no big worries in life. Your kids will be well-behaved. Everything will look glossy and nice. That's a big lie of religion. Jesus never promised that. If that's your expectation, then you're going to really be struggling with Christianity right now. And I think there's an entire generation of evangelical Christians my age deconstructing their faith because their expectation of what the Christian life is is not the reality of what Jesus promises it will be. 
And we have two options. We can throw out the old wineskin and leave Christianity behind, or we can go back to Jesus and we can realize that some of the expectations we had for him or were told to expect from him were things he never said or promised, and we can start filling a new wineskin. We can get a new look at Jesus. We can come to Jesus and be filled with who he is, not the Jesus we expected. So, as we end, three things. One, check your expectations. What are your expectations for life? What are your expectations for God? What are your expectations for Jesus or the Christian life? Are they expectations that are true to what Jesus said and his invitation about what he said the Christian life was like? Or have they been built piecemeal from a thousand different ideas and they're not actually reasonable, they're not actually honest, they're not actually real? Check your expectations. Sometimes we expect things from people that we've never told them, and so how can we expect them? Sometimes we expect things from people that we don't expect from ourselves. And sometimes we put expectations on God where he's never promised to make our lives simple, easy, and safe. Number two, do we show mercy or do we perform mindless religious rituals? Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees, you need to go and learn what this means. God wants mercy. He wants you to be merciful to other people, not perform mindless sacrifices, not just perform religious rituals. I had a lady I talked to in the community a few years ago, and I was inviting her to church and talking to her about Jesus, and she said, some of the rudest people I know, uh, she lived right near a large church parking lot in the area, and she said, some of the rudest people I know are the people leaving that parking lot, the way that they drive, the way that they behave, and she's like, they're there every Sunday, but the way they pull out and the way they treat me in my yard and stuff make me want to have nothing to do with Jesus. They were doing the religious ritual, right? But they couldn't take the time to think about the person that they were affecting who was right next door to their church. The barrier for her coming to know Jesus was the way people of Jesus had behaved while at the same time carefully following a religious ritual of attending church. I'm glad you attend church. I'm glad that you're here. But this is not what Jesus wants. He wants this to transform us out there into people who bring good news, who are agents of love and people of peace. If you do this, but out there you're terrible, then you are missing the point. Number three, do you have some new wineskins laid aside for new ideas? Sometimes we, are, we hold so rigidly to our beliefs sometimes because we think if I ask any questions about them, if I have any doubts, if I have any new ideas or different thoughts, I am going to somehow lose all my faith. What I've found is asking honest questions about what you believe, reading different perspectives, seeing what different people believe, has not made me believe less. It has made my faith stronger. Uh, when I went to Bible college, I had a Bible professor who was like, don't read that guy. He's, he's a heretic. Don't read this guy. He'll, he'll give you weird ideas. Don't read this guy. And I was like, if Jesus is true, I think truth will win out. I don't think we need to be so terrified. Like, what if it's a new idea? Sometimes Jesus wants to take old ideas that are bursting at the wineskins of our mind and give us a fresh perspective on who he is, what he's about, and what he wants to do through us in the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful that you are good and that you love us and that you came to die for us. Thank you for your body and your blood, your sacrifice. Thank you for your life and your teaching. Thank you for your resurrection and ascension. 
But God, forgive me for sometimes drawing such tight, small little boxes for you that you can't do anything new. You can't surprise me in any way. I want a very predictable, very containable, very controllable God. And that just breaks the definition of who you are. God, help us to have open minds to see you for who you are, not who we've been told you are, not who we want you to be, but for who you are. God in human form who has come to earth to teach us how to live and love like you so that we might be part of your eternal kingdom where all wrongs are set right. God, help us to be agents of love and people of peace who carry with us the good news of who you are and what you're about and what you're doing in us and through us. Help us to have healthy expectations for you and not ridiculous expectations. Help us to come to you with our needs and our requests trust you. God, we know that you have the authority to heal. You healed Matthew. You healed the storm. You healed those possessed by demons. You healed those uh, with every ailment. And so, God, we ask that you would heal in our lives, in our bodies, in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our city. God, our city needs so much healing. Help us to know